as people who have been made in the image and likeness of God, we are called to worship our Creator, to declare His praises, His excellences, excellencies, to tell of what He has done. And worship is far more than just singing. A life of worship stretches beyond just this gathering, but we are called to worship or declare His praises in all that we do. One way we declare His praises, one way we declare who our God is, is through our giving. When we generously give back a portion of what God has given to us, and when we do that, we are declaring to our own hearts above all else that our trust is in God, that He is who we worship, that our God is faithful, that our God is our provider, that we can't outgive a God who has been so generous to us through the giving of His Son. We are declaring that our trust is not in our money, not in our accounts, not in, not in our own wisdom for that matter, but our trust is in God. We trust in His wisdom, we trust in His goodness, His grace, His provision in our lives. And so I pray that we would be people who would declare His praises, not only in how we sing, but in how we give. Uh, Father God, I thank You for um, moments like this. I thank You for a gathering to be able to be together as Your people, to be able to sing, to be able to give. And I pray that as we give, that it wouldn't be about us, but it would be about You, and that as we give, You would remind us of your nature and your character, your goodness, your grace, your greatness, your majesty. And I pray that you would take what is given here, use it for your kingdom, use it to expand the gospel, use it to change lives. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you so much, God, that you could be just such an amazing God that we can just stand here um, as we are um, so broken and that you can uh, be so perfect um, that you are just worthy to be praised. And uh, we just give you all the honor and glory and praise this morning and just open our hearts and uh, we surrender ourselves to you uh, for what you have prepared for us this morning. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, uh, good morning, Cross Point. Uh, the sun will be out on Easter morning, hopefully, and that will be a good day to be together. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, go to uh, chapter 5 of 1 Peter. We're finishing up our series through the book of 1 Peter, and I pray it's been an encouragement and a challenge uh, for your own heart. I pray that you're sharing what God is teaching you, what God is showing you through His Word, that you're not keeping your faith private or, uh, or kept close, but you're uh, going outward with it, sharing with those around you. Congratulations to Steve and Jamie Govey on the birth of their son, Theodore Newton. Uh, he was born on March 22nd, is welcomed home by big brother Daniel, big sister Georgia, and so we'd encourage you to be blessing the Goveys with a meal. Uh, Theodore made his uh, appearance already this morning at Cross Point, and so I'd encourage you to be blessing their family with a meal. You can sign up on our Facebook page. The link is there. That's a simple way to show love toward one another and to bless a new family. Uh, Easter is next Sunday, and I have a couple challenges for you, a couple um, uh, things to keep in mind, things to approach or things to keep in mind as we approach Easter. First of all, who are you going to invite on Easter Sunday? The vast majority of people will say yes to a simple invitation to come to a church service. So who are you going to invite? There's an invite card in your program. I'd encourage you to use that as a, as a way to invite somebody. All right. The second challenge is, th- is this. Would you commit to praying with us as Easter approaches? that not only would seeds of the good news be planted in the hearts of those that we are driven to reach, but people would come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and lives would be forever changed. Uh, The missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, said this, Evangelism doesn't start when we talk to people about God, but when we talk to God about people. So I encourage you at Crosspoint to be talking to God about people this week, not just this week, but especially this week, to be holding people up to the Lord, lifting them up to the Lord, asking God to move and work in their hearts. We're also going to have a Good Friday service and potluck and uh, communion service, so I encourage you to be a part of that. Details are in your program and to be a part of that special evening. I want to pray for Easter and pray for this morning, and then we'll get into the message. Uh, Father God, I thank you that you are great and that uh, we worshiped you through song already. I pray that Uh, in this service, that you would be glorified, that you would be honored. I pray that you would uh, remove me so that we could see and hear from you clearly. Father, I pray for Good Friday and Easter, not only at Cross Point, but in churches around this area, that the gospel would be preached, that you would be uh, lifted up, that we would remember the cross, we would remember the resurrection, and lives would be changed. Give us opportunities to speak and to show and tell of the good news this week. I pray that seeds of the gospel would be planted, that your word would go forth and do what it is intended to do. We love you and we thank you that you first loved us. We thank you for the reminder of the cross and resurrection. I pray that next week, next weekend, would be a significant weekend for us in our faith and in this community and in this region. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so today we're tackling all of chapter 5. We'll see three groups addressed here, the elders of a church, the younger generation in the church, and then all of us in the church. And in this chapter, there's the overarching theme of humility. One of our values around here as a church is is a humble and authentic servant leadership. 
And so today, through the words of 1 Peter 5, we'll be challenged to grow in humility. And I think we'd all agree that when we see pride in other people, it's not appealing to us at all. It's not this virtue that we see in others that causes us to be drawn to them or causes us to want to follow them or listen to them. And yet, you know, the number one thing, the number one thing that we often miss, the number one thing that we are prone to be blind toward, including myself, is, is our own pride. I mean, we are CSI detectives that can spot pride in another person and be really quick to point it out, I mean, or at least murmur about it with other people. But then when it comes to looking in the mirror or examining our own hearts, we can be like, well, I don't really struggle with pride. I'm just right. <laughs> or maybe I have some pride, but have you seen so-and-so? Have you seen who I'm friends with, who I work with, who I work for, who I'm married to, who I used to be married to? Have you seen how proud they are? I mean, I, I, maybe I got a little pride, but have you seen them? I mean, little old me? I mean, really? And then we get proud about our apparent humility. Have you seen how humble I am? Have you seen how selfless and sacrificial I am and how I serve others? And all the while, pride sneaks up in a thousand different ways to our hearts. And I pray that for each of us, whether it be pastors, elders, students, younger generation, all of us in this church, frankly, that we would be humbled today. That we would be humbled. That where pride is lurking in our hearts, that God would expose that because He loves us. And we would turn from that, pursue to grow in humility by the grace of God, for the glory of God, and for our good. So let's first talk elders, verses 1 through 4. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of, sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So the Holy Spirit is inspiring Peter to write these words. And they remind us of the leadership in the church. And there is a lead pastor. There is a senior leader in the church, and his name is Jesus Christ. Let me just fill that in for you in case you're ever thinking it would be me. He is the chief shepherd, and he is on top of the flow chart. This church is not built on me. It's not built on Eric. It's not built on the elder team. It's built on Jesus Christ himself. We are his people. He is our good shepherd who cares for his sheep, who protects us, uh, provides for us, feeds us, strengthens us, leads us. And then under Jesus, the pastors, elders, shepherds serve. Um, they are submitted to His Lordship in their life, and, and there is not just one shepherd, but there is multiple. New Testament elders serve in plurality. There is a team. Leadership is shared. You see the example of shared leadership in Jesus' disciples and among the seven who were appointed in Acts 6. The church is built on one man. It's built on one man. But that one man is the God-man, Jesus Christ. The minute the church becomes about an earthly personality and not a heavenly one, then it's moving further and further away from the New Testament and how the New Testament calls churches to function in a healthy, God-honoring way. Jesus is, is the chief shepherd, and then he calls a group of elders to be under-shepherds in the local church, to first and foremost follow him, to be submitted to his authority. And here's one reason, because it requires humility to serve among a team. It requires an elder to check his agenda, his attitude, what he brings to the table, check all of that at the door. My role on the team is a unique one. 
In a sense, I'm a first among equals, similar to how Peter was a first among equals with the disciples, and yet I'm among the team alongside one another, and at the same time, I am subject to or under their unified authority. So they shepherd my heart. They care for my heart. They oversee my role and function. So if something gets out of whack in my life, if, if some sin begins to expose itself and, and needs to be exposed, if I start saying heretical things here from the stage, they are the ones who shepherd and oversee. The role of an elder, elder demands that humility in Christ must be present. So if I, when I coach basketball, if there's a player who is just out for himself to fill the stat sheets and what about me and what am I going to play and can't I have the ball all the time and why are they shooting? I want to shoot all the time. And if that happens, the team's effectiveness and health will suffer. Same is true for a church. If someone is just out to lift themselves up to make sure their needs are met, then the church's health will suffer. And that's especially true of its leaders. Leaders must be the ones who lead the way in humility and lead the way in serving and giving their lives away for God's purpose and mission. The New Testament example is that of a team or shared leadership. So in practical terms, if I pass away, if I step in front of a bus or around here it'd be step in front of a tractor, okay? If I, if a tractor just, if I dart out in front of a tractor and, and that's the end, the bottom won't fall out on this church because Crosspoint isn't built on me. It really isn't about me in the end. The elders will rise up in that situation. Shepherding and oversight will continue to happen because the chief shepherd hasn't left his, his church. The chief shepherd is still on his throne. And he's still reigning. He's still ruling. He's still building the church. And you'll notice in these verses, Peter shares some, uh, both some things that leaders are supposed to do and then some things that they are not supposed to do. The twofold function of elders is to shepherd and oversee. That's what we see in the New Testament. They are to shepherd people and oversee the ministry of the local church. If we know those things, then the next question is, how is that to happen? And what we'll see primarily is this is less and less about skills and abilities and much more about character and heart and your walk with the Lord. Leadership begins with character. It doesn't begin with skills. It begins in the heart and in our attitudes and that's what Peter addresses here. Four contrasts, if you will. Verses 2 and, two and 3 again say, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So the first, uh, first one, elders should not serve out of compulsion, but willingly. No one should be a leader in a church because they were forced, because they were shoved, because they were pressed into it. In the book of Acts, you repeatedly see that it's the Holy Spirit that calls people into ministry. In Acts 13, the, the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work of God, for the missionary work, for the church planting work, the work that I've called them to. In Acts 20, 28, Paul tells the Ephesian elders, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of, uh, and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Sometimes people get into ministry for all the wrong reasons, they, uh, none of which has to do with anything to do with the Spirit of God calling in their life. So I don't care what your role in is at Crosspoint, whether it's staff, elder, volunteer, leader, ministry leader, behind the scenes, in front of the scenes, whatever it is, if you feel like it's really significant or it's really insignificant, wherever you land on that, I pray that you would not serve out of um, compulsion, guilt, or pressure. 
I pray that you'd serve because you love Jesus, because you love this church, because you love its people and the people yet to be reached, and you understand that you're a vital part of the kingdom. There are two ways to approach how we serve in ministry. It's a, uh, it's a job, obligation, requirement, or it's a calling. It's a God-given opportunity to serve Jesus and glorify God. You can see it as a clock in, clock out, check it off the list, what's next on the to-do list, or you can see it as a calling that you're living out. Jesus called the clock in, clock out people uh, hired hands in John 10. And the hired hands, according to Jesus, when they see the wolf coming, they abandon the sheep and they run away. The wolf then comes in, attacks the sheep, and the hired hand run, runs away because, as Jesus says, he cares nothing for the sheep. He was just serving because he had to uh, or for his own benefit. He was in it for himself. And so at the first sign of adversity, trouble, difficulty, obstacles, he's off. So I'm, th- I'm so thankful for the leaders and volunteers around here who do not act like a hired hand, but instead reflect the good shepherd, who, um, the good shepherd Jesus, who loves his people, who cares for his people. And, and so I just, I thank you and I encourage you to continue to serve as Jesus would, as the good shepherd, caring for the people that he has entrusted us to. The next heart motive that Peter deals with here is elders are to serve not for shameful gain, but eagerly. In other words, elders and pastors are not motivated by greed. Shepherds love God, and they love people, and they use money to demonstrate that love. They do not love money and then use people to somehow get more of it. Elders do not see the people of God as pawns to manipulate in order to get money. Elders instead, they shepherd and oversee so that God's resources are managed wisely, faithfully, generously, And so that those resources then go to minister to people, to impact people, to reach people. The final charge that uh, that Peter gives to elders is in verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Elders and shepherds are not to serve because they want the power or because they want to lord their authority over others, but because, rather, because they want to lead by example, which means they will be the first ones to humble themselves. Some leaders are motivated by title, by position. You might have seen this at work, in church, in some nonprofit organization. They have the title on their desk, on their door, on their cubicle, and they want to make sure that you know about it. They want to be in authority, but not under authority. Domineering leadership is not reflective of all uh, when it comes to the New Testament teaching on eldership. It also doesn't lead to a healthy church body. The pride in us naturally wants to be in charge, to call the shots, to have the authority, or we want to be in power because we have a personal agenda, because we represent a faction, or that we have some issue that we really really want to start campaigning for. That's not loving the flock. It's not being a godly example. If we lead or serve because we want the power or the title, then we won't be willing to be corrected or called out for something or told, you know, I see this in your life, or on, on the elder team, again, we are among one another. So that's giving, that's receiving, that's iron sharpening iron, speaking the truth in love. If we are proud and arrogant, then all we'll want to do is sharpen other people, and we'll never want to be sharpened, right? Domineering and contentious people they have no place in church leadership. The elders are in a place of authority in the church, serving as shepherds and overseers of the flock. This will lead them sometimes to speak the truth in love, to correct, to rebuke. But if an elder or pastor isn't first 
willing to be corrected and rebuked by Jesus and the Holy Spirit and His Word themselves, if they aren't first willing to submit to that, then they're not fit to be an elder. Pride has, again, no place in leadership, whether it's home, whether it's in church, whether it's in the workforce. In addition to shepherding others with the servant's heart, the elders must humbly and lovingly relate to one another on the team. So they must be able to patiently build consensus, compromise, persuade, listen, handle disagreement, forgive, receive uh, rebuke and correction, confess sin, value the wisdom of and perspective of others, even those with whom they would disagree. They must be able to submit to one another, speak kindly and gently to one another, be patient with one another. And I will tell you from an insider's view of our elder team, by the grace of God, so much of that describes our team right now. Uh, And it has for a long time. We aren't perfect. Uh, There is always room to grow and improve. But in a lot of churches, the leadership behind closed doors is dysfunctional, it's broken, it's proud, and it's, uh, it's divided. Around here, not so, and I'm grateful. And we give God the glory for that. And we trust Him with whatever and however He wants to shape us in, in the weeks and months to come. And I encourage you to be praying for us continually. None of these guys on the elder team take it, as a, uh, take it casually or flippant about it. This last meeting, we spent much of our time talking about things that we needed to grow in, our hearts needed to grow in, and how we wanted to grow in as, as shepherds and overseers and become more effective as a team. And I'm really grateful for those uh, honest conversations. The elders don't sit on top of the church in a lording way, but in an example way. In a follow me as I follow Christ manner. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So the elders are not just in authority, but under the authority of Jesus. They should be learning and growing and being changed by God's Spirit and His Word as much as anyone else. They should be going first in that. The last thing that Peter draws a contrast to is in verse 4. He says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So, elders and shepherds don't serve for the applause or praise of people, but rather for the approval and praise of the chief shepherd alone. One day Jesus will return, and and among other things, he will reward with glory every believer who has served him faithfully. We live and serve for an audience of one. Godly men don't aspire to the role of elder or pastor for popularity. I can tell you that one. Because not everyone cheers or applauds every time a decision is made. Not everyone even notices the time, that, like what happens behind the scenes, the hours put in, the conversations that occur, the time on your knees spent, and that's okay. Because again, we don't serve for the applause or praise of others. Now, don't get me wrong. It's a great thing to encourage one another. It's a great thing to encourage elders, pastors, leaders, to show appreciation, thankfulness. Keep doing that, okay? But the fear of man is this trap that we can all fall into, elder or not. It's a snare for all of us, Proverbs tells us. So Peter reminds us here, when it comes to serving as an elder, don't forget that in the end, we want God to be praised. We want Him to be glorified. We want the name of Jesus lifted up through this ministry and not the name of Crosspoint. We want our Lord and Savior to be pleased above all else. I will tell you that after... uh, Uh, nearly eight years of ministry as a pastor, this role is the most um, uh, humbling, uh, exposing, uh, overwhelming, if you will, um, thing I've ever done. 
Ministry has a way of exposing things in your heart and faith that I don't believe would have gotten exposed had it not been um, for this role and not been for God's calling in this way. Christ-like humility is the key. A humble church uh, results from humble leaders. And that's where Peter goes next, because elders should not serve out of pride, and that should not fuel this uh, personal agenda, this, um, this pride of shepherding and overseeing people. Our pride is the root of all our sin. Leaders are not the only ones falling victim to their own pride. Pride makes us think that we are self-reliant, right? That, that we're okay on our own, that we don't need help, that I can fix this on my own, that I can lead this thing on my own. Pride goes before a fall. Pride is the root of all that we've talked about thus far. Pride is selfish, and so it serves out of compulsion. Pride is greedy. Pride wants the applause of others. Pride wants to domineer, lord its authority over others. And the way of Christ, the pursuit of humility, calls us to forsake all of that sinful pride. Elders are to choose a life of service on behalf of others. Like Jesus, elders are to sacrifice their time and energy for the good of others. We are to clothe ourselves in humility toward one another, and that biblical truth applies to every believer in Christ, and that's where Peter goes next, starting in verse 5. Likewise, in that same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Likewise, in the same way that elders submit to the chief shepherd, in the same way there is authority in all of life. We've seen that elsewhere in 1 Peter. As elders subject and submit themselves to Jesus, so we as a church submit to the elders' oversight and shepherding, specifically to the younger generation to be willing to follow the elders. So if you would call yourself a member of the younger generation, uh, middle school, high school student, college student, 20-something, let me challenge you to pursue humility, to clothe yourself in humility and not pride. Every member of a younger generation for a thousand generations, believes that they know it all. And they know more than the generation in front of them. Do you know how I know that? I know that through my own personal experience. Because I was once a teenager, believe it or not. I was once a 20-something, believe it or not. And I thought I knew it all. Now I'm a 38-year-old who sees in hindsight the pride that often was um, not really outward, but it was still in my heart. And so now I've, I've got uh, at least three other pastors that are older than me who have far more experience than I do, been at it a lot, a lot longer, and so I'm trying to follow them in a sense. They have the authority to speak life into me, and so because I'm, I'm aware of how pride can be this uh, thing, rearing its head in my own heart. Um, all through Scripture, pride is this downfall of people. Old Testament, New Testament, story after story about how pride has led to uh, failure. It's ultimately led to someone's destruction if they didn't turn around. So to the younger generation, your zeal, your passion, your creativity, your desire to make, make a difference, your God-given ability to do so, they're beautiful. They're inspiring qualities. The body of Christ needs those. This church needs those. We need you to rise up to be the church of today and not the church of tomorrow. We need you to serve and give and make disciples and give your life away and not think that that happens at age whatever in your head, but to give your life away for something bigger. But listen to me, in the midst of all of that, you need to pursue a humbled heart, a heart that is open to be taught, encouraged, corrected, rebuked, trained, a heart that willingly seeks the counsel of others, that pursues the counsel of others. It pursues the advice, the wisdom 
of others, a heart that is quick to listen and slow to speak. Your future self will thank you. Your future self will thank you if your present self pursues humility. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult to follow someone, but all of that is good for your soul because in that, you're ultimately learning to follow Jesus. You're following Him as Lord and King of your life, and you're, you're surrendering that, that desire to sometimes place yourself up as Lord and King. Then Peter moves on to a charge to all of us. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Humility is not this popular trait in our modern world, is it? It's not one that typically gets celebrated, noticed, rewarded. Christians, though, should be humble people. We don't take our cues from the world. Instead, we take our cues from Scripture, which, which calls us here to clothe ourselves with humility. It's a defining mark of a Christian. Peter gives us some motivation here on why we should pursue humility. First of all, that God opposes the proud. Nothing could be worse than to have an infinitely powerful and holy and just God opposed to you and me. I don't know about you, but I need God's strength, blessing, grace, mercy. I don't need His opposition. I have enough battles on my own to fight. The last thing I need is to be fighting a battle with Almighty, incomparable God. Secondly, Peter reminds us that God gives grace to the humble. Nothing could be better than being shown grace by an infinitely powerful God. When we pursue humility, we are reflecting a heart that is desperate for grace. We also see Peter tell us that God will use His mighty hand to exalt the humble. What a great motivation to pursue humility. That even if in this life, humility earns us no accolades in the end, in eternity, it will matter. It will have mattered that we will have humbled ourselves in this life. We also see that when we pursue humility, God will use His mighty hand to care for the humble. What an incredible promise that, that a God who can't be compared to anyone or anything who is beyond time and space is deeply personal and cares for you, cares for those who trust and follow Him. God opposes the proud is what we're told. And we see that same truth in Proverbs and Book of James throughout Scripture. And so what's pride? We first have to recognize our tendency to clothe ourselves in pride. Well, pride is this reliance upon ourselves, that we are sufficient on our own, that we don't need anyone in this life. Our ways are best. I don't need a Savior. I can save myself. I'm that good. The pride in my heart wants to uh, place ourselves above instruction and correction. Our pride wants to say, well, I'm always right. Pride says, you know who needs to change? Is you not me. I mean, if you'd change, then this problem would go away. Pride doesn't want to follow anyone but itself. Pride loves to be the center of attention. Pride loves to be made much of. We're either pursuing humility or we're pursuing pride. We're either dying to ourselves or we're finding ways to puff ourselves up. Pride doesn't cast its cares on anyone but itself because, again, pride thinks it can handle it by itself. Pride shifts blame, points fingers, becomes the victim. Humility owns their own sin and then casts that upon the Lord because humility knows that God is good, that He is mighty, 
that He is able, that He is gracious, and He cares for us. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. The Greek word for anxiety means to be drawn in different directions. Isn't that the truth? To be drawn in different directions. Your mind is scattered. You're thinking about this, and then you're worrying about this, and then in 1.2 seconds you're worried about that, and then you're back to this, and back and forth it goes. I find it interesting that Peter says that we are to humble ourselves, but then we are to cast our anxiety onto the Lord. It's as if Peter knows that when we humble ourselves, it will lead us to freaking out and having anxiety. Because then we won't be in control, right? Because we will have humbled ourselves. I'm used to trusting in myself, not God. So if I'm trusting in God, not myself, then what am I supposed to do with this anxiety that I now have? Cast it upon the Lord. Because in doing so, we are saying that we're not God. That our trust is not in ourselves, but in the Lord. Notice how God is the focus of these verses. Peter, we, Peter wants to remind us who God is, that He is able, mighty, that He cares. Remember the context of this letter, too. The culture is not welcoming to these people's faith. These people are being persecuted, mocked, insulted, beaten for their faith. And so to say that they might be feeling some anxiety is an understatement. And that anxiety could lead them to this fearful living. It could cause them to uh, withdraw or the slow creep to trust in themselves rather than in the God who has saved them. Because when we're anxious, we will grow fearful. And when we're fearful, we won't go forth. We won't walk by faith. We won't trust in God. We won't trust God with the greatest things in our lives. And we will forsake the God who is able, to be, uh, who is, able, who is mighty, and who cares. Verses 8 through 11 say, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion power, or to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The devil's like a lion, we see here. We also see in scripture that he's like a snake. He's sneaky, quiet, deceptive. He's hidden, subtle. The snake is indirect. A lion, on the other hand, is not quiet. We are told here he is like a roaring lion. So he's not trying to be quiet, he's trying to exert his power, his strength. The lion is very, very direct versus the snake. When the lion roars, his hope is to shake your confidence, to make your knees shake, to cause you to forget in that moment who God is, that that roar would somehow outweigh who our God is. Because if he can do that, if he can get us to forget who our God is, if he, if he can get us to forget and take our eyes off of Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, our Savior, our Lord, the one who cares for us, then he's one. Because then we'll forget that God is mighty, he's able, and that he cares. Or we'll forget that God has any sort of power to help or that God even exists. This happens all the time when we get entangled in sin. Everything kind of becomes a fog. And all the while, the devil's on the prowl in the midst of that fog. Be sober and watchful, Peter says. Because when you're fighting the lion, you're going to be, when you're walking through life, which is a spiritual warfare, you don't want to be drunk or distracted. You can step on the sneaky snake. If you're like me, you can take a shovel to that thing 25, 30 times just to make sure, right? But a lion, on the other hand, you're a goner if you don't realize that 
you have a greater power than that lion with you. You as a believer in Christ, the reality of 1 John says that greater is he who is in you than he who is in this world. But that roar makes you want to forget that. He wants to make you forget it. C.S. Lewis said that we, we make two great mistakes when it comes to spiritual warfare. We either blame everything on the devil um, and never on our own flesh, our own choices, on the fallen world that we're in, or we make this mistake of thinking the devil isn't real and we, have, we really don't have any spiritual enemy. Listen to me, the devil's aim is to destroy you. I'm not trying to be melodramatic here, right? If you know me, I'm not really melodramatic. I'm simply reading the Bible. He's compared to a lion. So he's not trying to scratch you. He's not trying to wound you. He's not trying to paw your face. He's not trying to, like the cat family, you know, rub up against your leg and be sweet, okay? His desire is to attack you, chew you up, swallow you, and destroy you. Again, I'm not trying to be melodramatic. I'm just reading the Bible. To bring you to complete ruin, to make you forsake God, to walk away from the support and life found in the body of Christ, to make you think all hope is lost because that roar is just much too loud. Or why bother? And then you chase after this life of sin. And ultimately, it leads to your eternal death and separation from God. And the lion has won. He's taken, his roar is trying to outweigh the reality of who our God is, that He is mighty, that He is able, and that He cares. What a stark contrast between such a great God and a lion who is out to destroy you and me. Verses uh, 12, through four, um, 12 through 14, I'm going to let you read on your own. Um, we're just going to move right along. Next week is Easter, and I want to uh, finish with this I, as I studied it. I was so encouraged by that. And, but today is Palm Sunday. If we go back to verse 7, we see that we are to cast our cares upon the Lord. The word casting in verse 7 shows up one other time in the New Testament. Guess when? Shows up on Palm, on Palm Sunday. The disciples have been sent to get the donkey for Jesus to ride in on. And Luke 19.35 says, And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. The meaning is this. If you have a garment on you, then you want an animal to carry it for you. You cast or you throw that, that cloak, that garment on the animal. In that way, you don't carry it anymore. It's on the animal. It's not on you. Listen, God is willing to carry our anxieties in the same way that an animal would carry a piece of clothing. Psalm 55, 22 says, Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. What's the anxiety, the worry, the fear, the sin that you're carrying right now? When you got up this morning, what was the thing that you put on with your clothes? What was the anxiety that you clothed yourselves in? What's the anxiety that you put on each and every day? Maybe it's not today, maybe it's tomorrow when you go into work. What's the garment that you throw in the trash in a sense, but then you dig it back out? After a while, and you put it back on, then you throw it in the trash, and you dig it back out. We are reminded here of who our God is, that He is great, that He is mighty, that He is able, and He knows far more than you and I do. And His ways lead to life and protection, and that this God, this great God, cares for you. 
He's able to care for us when we humble ourselves and cast our worries, our fears upon Him. The command is to cast your anxiety on God. The promise is that God is able, that the animal is not going to crush because this is God. And He is able and that He cares for you. He cares about the thing that you lay in bed thinking about, the thing that you're losing sleep on, the thing that's keeping you from functioning. He wants you to trust Him in that. What's the thing you need to cast upon the Lord this morning? What's the thing you need to trust Him specifically on to work this morning? To believe this command and this promise are true. Do you believe that God will act and work? Do you believe the words of Scripture are true? That if you stop carrying your anxiety and worry and cast it upon the Lord, that God will work. I've got some things I need to cast upon the Lord this morning because I know He's able to carry them. I wasn't designed to carry them in my own strength. I was invited by Jesus. You've been invited by Jesus to respond to His words in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30, which says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In this last song, I want us to respond as the Lord would lead us. I want us to humble ourselves. I want us to humble ourselves. I'll go first. I want us to get honest before God who cares for us. Where there is pride and sin, I want us to confess that. Where, there is, where we are desperate for His grace, I want us to tell that to the Lord. Where we have worries and cares, I pray that we would express that to the Lord and cast that upon Him. If that means you come up and kneel at the stage, then do that. If that means you pray at your seat, then do that. If, you need, if that means you've got to talk to somebody else, then do that. It is time, Crosspoint, that we would drop our pride, that we would pursue humility, and we would cast our anxieties upon the Lord, and we would receive the grace of God. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. I pray that we would present our requests to God today.
when strength is gone in the middle of a fire when fear is closing in you are you are my song oh you're my hope when hope is gone so i will cast my cares on you the almighty i will cast my cares on you cuz you're good i will cast my cares on you cuz you love me you love me oh oh because you love me oh oh because you love me god of glory you are able through your power to be faithful god of mercy every That's our prayer, Lord, that whatever we're facing as the Holy Spirit is doing His work right now, our trust, we, we corporately declare that our trust and our faith is in You. I thank You for who You are, that You are more than trustworthy, that You are good, that You are gracious, that You are mighty, You are able. And where we're not believing that, where the roar of the lion, so to speak, is is trying to outweigh that reality. I pray that uh, you would break forth, you would break through, and that you would remind us of who you are, who we are in light of that, and that we would be a people who would cast our, our anxieties, our, our worries, our fears, our sin upon you. I thank you for the reminder of the cross coming up this week and the resurrection that we have hope and life because of you and you alone. I pray that we would be a people who would pursue humility by the grace of God, that we wouldn't 
somehow be puffed up in our own humility, but instead we would uh, be puffed up about who you are. We would boast in you, and that we would elevate you in our lives. And God, this church would bring you glory and bring you honor. Pray for um, Jane McCulley and her family on the loss of her sister. I pray that even as these verses relate, I pray they would cast their anxiety upon you. I thank you that you're good and gracious to be near to the brokenhearted. We love you. Prepare our hearts for Good Friday. Prepare our hearts for Easter. Save people this week, God. Plant seeds and do what only you can do. It's for your good. It's for It's for our good, it's for your glory, and it's for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Meet somebody new before you leave. Invite somebody to Easter and see you Friday night or Sunday. God bless.